all sorts of lines, is that right? Yes, that's when you're talking, it goes yeah, across the things. those things, right. It's Wednesday the something of June. It is. Fourth. Fourth, there we are. I just want to um, read something here of Bob Mumford's. I don't know why, but I, I sense that the Lord is saying, just read it. It's one of his little plumb line booklets that I would really recommend. If you go into lifechangers.org and are going under plumb lines, you'll find all these little booklets. Absolutely brilliant. You can subscribe to get one, um, at one every two months as well. Uh, which gives you his up-to-date messages or his son's up-to-date messages and they are absolutely brilliant. And this one I've discovered is written by him and his daughter because I thought, who's Karen Kilgore? And of course it's his daughter because she's married, isn't he? Isn't she? So I feel he wants to put it on here because you might be wanting to listen to it again at another time. And it's called Inflamed Desire. They made fun of my little car. I was amazed to discover how defensive I'd become when I was teased about my economy model. It may be true that many other cars are faster, better looking, smoother on the road and roomier, but I always liked my little gas saver. I liked it, that is, until one day, after an especially robust round of teasing about my car, I stopped to see a friend at the car dealership where he works. We talked about the Lord and how his job was going and we finished some personal business. As I was about to leave he said why don't you let me take you for a ride in this new luxury model. So I did. It was a dream. Genuine leather seats, full stereo, six cylinder engine with automatic overdrive and more. The test drive was quite a pleasurable experience but it caused a problem. It made me extremely discontented with my own little car. After that pleasure ride, I began to find all kinds of problems with my economy model. Never, it seemed, had my car rattled so much, looked so dirty and driven so badly. I wondered just how I could ever have purchased such a bomb. <laughs> Reasons for buying a new car suddenly seemed abundant. Really, I thought, a man of my stature should have a better car. Certainly, I reasoned, it must be the will of God to trade before too many miles accumulated on my five-year-old model. Around and around I went, until I began to realise I was involved in a very real struggle with the Lord. He was challenging me to follow my own teaching. Make do with what you have. I was faced with a choice. I could allow the process of becoming discontent to lead me into the unwise purchase of a new luxury model with all the finance charges, or I could reverse that process and rediscover the contentment I had experienced with my economy car. By God's grace I chose to seek contentment with what I had. I began to concentrate on the advantages of the car I owned. It only had a few miles and it was still like new. Joy came when I had to fill up because of its great mileage on diesel fuel. I replaced the tyres, had the car tuned up, washed it and waxed it. As the days passed I began to enjoy my little auto as I had in the past. What was more important, my contentment returned. Contentment is an inward sufficiency that deeply satisfies us so that we do not long for something more or different. It's a mental disposition which enables us to rule our desires and confine our wants to the measure of what God has provided without murmuring. 
Contentment in the biblical sense means to be free from care because of an abiding satisfaction with what is already one's own. This applies not only to things but to relationships, occupations and many other aspects of life. But contentment is more than mere satisfaction. Someone can be temporarily satisfied with what he has without having learned the biblical basis of real contentment. Genuine contentment is an ongoing way of life, an inward attitude, while mere satisfaction depends on external circumstances and fluctuates with the fulfilment or frustration of particular desires. It's a bit like happiness, depends on what happens. To understand contentment better, we need to know not only what it is, but also what it is not. We should not mistake contentment for passivity, laziness or lack of concern for our own welfare. Nor should we confuse the scriptural concept of contentment with some self-help or positive thinking approach to life. Biblical contentment is not a hindrance to progress. It does not deny or destroy the need to advance, explore or plan ahead. Finally, we need to know the difference between being content with what we have and being content with who we are because we dare not confuse self-satisfied lethargy with genuine contentment. Discontent Discontent is a restless desire for something better resulting in unhappiness or dissatisfaction. In the New Testament, the Greek word is pleonexia, meaning to have a look at this, I haven't looked it up yet, meaning to covet. The Oxford Dictionary defines covetous as having a great desire to possess something belonging to someone else. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament sheds an interesting perspective on this word in light of our understanding of eros. Pleonexia, or covetousness, is a. having more b. receiving more, and c. wanting more, with a reference to power, etc., as well as to property. In ethics, we find an extension of meaning to outdoing others, being superior, taking precedence, excelling, or forging ahead at others' expense. In other developments, we find such senses as taking advantage, taking by force, violating laws, for example, greedily desiring things and asserting oneself. Not nice, is it? When one is discontent, they cling to possessions. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5.10 and 6.10, put covetous people in the same category with immoral people, swindlers, idolaters, thieves and drunkards, and said they would not inherit the kingdom of God. Discontent is such an important issue that God addressed one of the great sources of this problem in the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbour's house, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife, or his male servant, nor his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. Exodus 20.17 To covet means to feel a feel blameworthy desire, that which is another's, or wish for longingly. The command not to covet holds the person and the personality together. This command is far more comprehensive than it first appears. It covers almost everything that is material, directly or by implication, including our neighbour's house, car, their spouse and the size and profitability of their business.
Coveting is linked closely with material advantage and greed in the New Testament. Luke 12.15 warns against increasing material possessions as a means of security. In 1 Thessalonians 4.6, believers are not wrong, not, are not to wrong other believers. The reference is not to business, nor to the matter of verse 4, but to disputes which God will decide. In Ephesians 4.19, immorality seems to be specifically in view. The pleonectes, that's the person, P-L-E-O-N-E-K-T-E-S, is an idolater according to Ephesians 5.3 and Matthew 6.24. For covetousness means subjection to an alien power. The community is thus to shun the pleonectus along with the idolater, reviler, etc. The robber is also included here, probably because the pleonectus seizes more by cunning than by force. Godliness and contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. 1 Timothy 6, 6 NIV. Paul gives here a succinct and powerful statement of the value of a life characterized by the security and rest that grows out of obedience to God's word and his Holy Spirit. Genuine contentment is born in godliness because godliness moderates our desires. God is glorified when we are neither greedy nor victims of a poverty mentality. Godliness also demands that we never use unlawful methods or manipulation of others to better our own personal lot in life. Just as godliness produces contentment, discontent can lead to unrighteousness. Paul observes that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. That's 1 Timothy 6, 9. This principle of human nature is one of the most common themes in literature. Simply stated, contented people love people. Discontented people love material things. What did Alex used to say? Use things and love people, not love things and use people. Sources of discontent. We need to recognise what can disrupt our contentment and breed discontent in us. Only in this way can we find great gain. One significant source of the pervading discontent in our society is the media. We are pressured to be dissatisfied with who we are and what we have by advertising approaches that encourage a worship of the young, the beautiful and the expensive. We can see this in the exponential increase of cosmetic surgery. Just going to look at when he published this because that's interesting always. 2006. The foolishness of such idols should be obvious. Evidently, however, it's not because we are so easily captivated by them. The word inadvertently means without intention. Advertently means with intention. The word advertising comes from this root. It intentionally flames our desires. Almost every ad is designed to make us consciously or subconsciously discontent with our present appearance, car, laundry detergent or lifestyle. 
and of course we're encouraged to believe that if we purchase the product advertised we will be happy, content and satisfied forever. Temptation awakens illegal desire causing us to want something bigger or better. All three of Jesus' temptations were designed to awaken a desire for what was being offered. It's interesting that while he refused to make stones into bread for himself, he later used that same miraculous power to feed 5,000 hungry people. All of our desires, which are essentially ungoverned, have the power and potential to turn to covetousness. There is no contentment with what one already owns. The desire is that we lose the very freedom. The result is that we lose the very freedom for which Christ came to set us free. If you have ever been close to a person given to covetousness, you will have seen how it destroys the personality. Coveting, coveting is more than jealousy, it leads to envy. From envy we move to injury and from injury to thoughts and actions of destruction of the person who has more than us. Envy does not stop at material things. It includes your hair which is curlier than mine or your personality trait that I wish I had. Pure equality is a total impossibility. Envy or covetousness are never satisfied. When it breaks loose within a person or society it leads to death. A contented person can say, I do not want your house, your car, your wife. I only want God and his provision for me. I want to love him and live in his freedom. I will rejoice with you when your house, car, finances, job, position, relationship, etc. are better than mine. When the Apostle Paul exhorted the church at Rome to refuse to let their minds be poured into this world's mould, he was writing a serious admonition that seems urgently needed in our day as well. Paul understood the principle upon which discontent can be cultivated. If a man is not content in the place or condition where he finds himself now, he is unlikely to be content in the place or condition where he wishes he were. In this light, the wisdom of God's word is evident. Let your life be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Hebrews 13.5 Sin and discontent Although modern advertising may be a factor in our chronic dissatisfaction with life, the causes of discontent are primarily not external. Our own sin produces many forms of discontent. Envy, James 3.16-4.3 Avarice, Hebrews 13.5, Pride and selfish ambition, Proverbs 13.10. All these flourish when they are allowed to grow in a continual environment of anxiety and worry, Matthew 6.25 and 34. James 4.1-2, What leads to strife, discord and feuds, and how to conflicts, quarrels and fighting originate among you? Do they not arise from your sensual desires that are ever warring in your bodily members? You are jealous and covet what others have, and your desires go unfulfilled. So you become murderous. To hate is to murder as far as your hearts are concerned. You burn with envy and anger and are not able to obtain the gratification, contentment and the happiness you seek. Sounds like the Amplified. So you fight and war 
you do not have because you do not ask or you do ask God for them and yet fail to receive because you ask with wrong purpose and selfish evil motives your intention is when you got what you desire to spend it in sensual pleasures you are like unfaithful wives having illicit love affairs with the world and breaking your marriage vow to God do you not know that being the world's friend is being God's enemy so whoever chooses to be a friend of the world takes his stand as an enemy of God or do you suppose that the scripture is speaking to no purpose that says the spirit whom he has caused to dwell in us yearns over us and he yearns for the spirit to be welcomed with jealous love that's all amplified scriptures the inflamed desire syndrome is the classic symptom of the person who has never learned contentment although we should be alert to God's provision of new opportunities and challenges we should be aware that chronic envy of other people's possessions and circumstances can be something as superficial as our clothes. Ever notice how a jacket, just like yours, looks so much better on someone else? <laughs> to envy of someone as important as our spouse or even our children. In our self-seeking generation, the question that will be asked with increasing frequency is, why should we love and serve the law when there's no obvious or immediate personal advantage in it? With that motivation, a person's contentment will be in direct proportion to the supply of the moment. The prosperity teaching that Christians are hearing today may eventually cause many to reject God because they will believe that he is breaking his promise to meet their every request. The absence of the aspect of suffering in following Jesus is sorely lacking. Like Paul, we need to learn how to be content, whether we are abounding in material possessions or living without them. Such self-centeredness is a great obstacle to contentment. Many people I've known and counselled make themselves their primary burden in prayer. If the focus of even their prayer life is themselves rather than God's will, how can they ever know contentment? One prerequisite for godly contentment is having a vision outside of ourselves and beyond our own personal concerns. The call of God draws us out to focus on others rather than on ourselves or what we have or don't have. Inflamed desire. There is a critical issue emerging due to our inability to understand the implications of desire that has been worked on and inflamed. Desire is broader than just materialism. The desire to succeed and be known in whatever religious or secular system you are involved in is prevalent. However, an overactive need for acceptance and approval leads to the fear of man. Consider the strength of inflamed desire when it reaches for power, control or the need to be the centre of attention. When inflamed, the desire for sexual fulfilment and comfort is overpowering. Sex is important, but it's not that important. The inflamed desire for a religious experience, or wanting the Lord to meet us in the manner we have predetermined, compared to the manner in which he personally has chosen. Desire for your spouse to love you in the manner in which you desire to be loved. Failure to do so is interpreted as being unloved. The person who is restlessly striving to better his own condition, even those seeking spiritual perfection within themselves, 
will find it a painful and futile search. A discontented person with inflamed desire finds themselves in a continual search for the perfect church in the perfect geographical area attended by perfect people. They mistakenly believe that finding such perfection is all they need to be content. But the problem is not the imperfection of their surroundings, the problem is their own discontent. Our personal desires to live in a certain geographical location, be with a certain with a specific personal group, to be in a certain occupation, are often accompanied with a vow to be unhappy till our inflamed desires have been satisfied. These desires can rule and govern us. The message makes this very clear. It's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalising everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. I could go on. This isn't the first time I've warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. That's the message version of Galatians 5, 19-21. Sometimes a deep and persistent discontent and restlessness may be a sign of being out of the will of God. One of the judgments on disobedience Moses warned Israel about was that you won't be able to find a home there, you'll not be able to settle down. God will give you a restless heart, longing eyes, a homesick soul. Deuteronomy 28, 60, 65. The message, there might be a mistake in that. I don't think Deuteronomy goes into such long verses as that. If someone is out of God's will for their life, contentment with themselves or their surroundings will be elusive. In all these situations, the issue is ultimately this. Do I genuinely need something I don't have? Or am I simply re reluctant to reduce my wants and expectations? We must become aware of what I call the curse of carnal comparisons, which Paul warns against in 2 Corinthians 10:12. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Paul points out that this kind of compassion is not only the source of discontentment, but also the generator of confusion for those who compare are without understanding. We must find the elusive but necessary boundary between our desires and our genuine needs, and the balance between God's provision and selfish materialism. When we're deceived by our desires, we have broken loose from the governmental influence of agape, for the love of Christ controls us unfulfilled expectations. Another significant factor in discontent is unfulfilled expectations. By its very nature, pleonexia or covetousness, eros, places, places its control and acquisition on everything and everyone it touches. These two manifestations are seen in the form of unrealistic expectations, unwritten, even unspoken demands, 
and the unrelieved sense of dissatisfaction. This appears to be a, an aspect of pleasure, the Greek word hedone, which is unrealized and essentially unmet. As James tell us, it tells us it creates wars within us, for in our unrealistic expectations of ourselves and others, we can never find the biblical con concept of contentment or rest. The answer lies in adjusting our desires rather than decreasing demands to attempt to satisfy those desires. Nothing could be more cruel than living with unfulfilled expectations that we assume came from God. A friend who runs an effective counselling centre in Southern California told me that many of their counsellees are trapped in false prophetic words that have created totally unfulfilled expectations. Christ satisfies. Jesus' promise that we would not hunger or thirst again is a key to understanding the transformation of desire. Rather than desires, he himself becomes our beloved, moving into the spheres and dimensions that we have been neglected and abused. He becomes our beloved by transforming our desires, giving us new ones in place of those that have controlled us. Scripture says he will give you the desires of your heart. Perhaps this is best understood as his giving us the desire itself rather than that which was the object of the desire. When our desires are his desires, we have the mind of Christ. When our will is tuned to his will and wishes, we've owned him as our Lord. When our heart and emotions are ruled, governed and determined by his heart and emotions, the result is uncorrupted love, which results in contentment. Some serious changes occur in us when we're discontent due to unmet expectations or covetousness. A loss of joy becomes the first symptom and several predictable events follow. There is an in in inability to find joy even though we seriously try to live what was taught. For some unknown reason we experience a loss of goal or objective. The childlike not childishness seems to dissipate. Things seem heavy or gloomy. People perceive something barren about us and want to withdraw from us or avoid being with us. There is a feeling of an invisible barrier between us and the Lord. Sometimes this is vague, other times it's very real. We are determined to persevere but it's pure endurance and not the promised joy. We discover an inability to be real, vulnerable, or what I call earthy. There is an absence of spiritual fulfillment. The promises of you will never thirst again and I am the bread of life seem like a fantasy. Others appear to be getting there, but not us. There is an abnormal amount of criticism, gossip and dissatisfaction with others. Discontent results in murmuring and griping we end up being highly critical of ourselves and of others. Learning to be content. Contentment is a skill that must be learned. The Apostle Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Philippians 4.11 His lessons in contentment were not theoretical but practical as he experienced both being filled and going hungry, both having abundance and suffering need. When Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, Matthew 6:11, he was teaching us to be content with the necessities of life. This is the prayer of the modest child. There's no request for luxuries here. 
While we as children have a legitimate right to receive support, the father is under no obligation to provide mere luxuries, although he might bestow even these, but out of a kind generosity, not obligation. How many things can I do without? This question puts into focus the problem of finding contentment. If we are discontent, we must seek either an increase in, or in what we have, or a decrease in our expectations. God may desire either solution, either solution or both, but if we are honest with him, more often than not, we will find that he wants to deal with our expectations. Dealing with discontent may be easier if we understand that the problem is not dealt with once and for all. My conviction is that except for those paralysed with discontent to the extent they need deliverance or psychological counselling, people usually experience discontent in cycles. We seem to fluctuate between satisfaction and dissatisfaction, between security and restlessness. Again, recognising the cyclical nature of our own desires gives us a perspective that can help us learn the skill of being content and allow us to make contentment our permanent state of mind. It can help prevent buying sprees, marital disruptions, frequent geographical moves, even church shopping. And then he cites a diagram of going up and down in a curve, like uh, just up and down over a... The central line is, a, is the goal of permanent contentment. When it goes down, it's depression in, in hard times, and when it goes up, it's elation in good times. So you get the adrenaline high and the equal adrenaline low. So it illustrates how inflamed desire causes emotional fluctuation an elation in good times and a depression when it doesn't go as we expected. Our goal is a permanent state of contentment regardless of our circumstances. The thermostat and the thermometer are examples of governed and inflamed desires. The thermostat represents governed desires or permanent contentment. It controls the climate by governing desire that has been inflamed. The thermometer, like an ungoverned desire, rises and falls in a cyclical and self-defeating manner when it goes up and down in confusion and freefall. We could identify this as being spiritually bipolar or manic behaviour. Questions The skill of contentment will serve us well in our continued walk with God as it preserves us from a thousand temptations. Following are some questions which will assist each of us in evaluating the extent of our contentment. 1. Am I confident that the temperament and personality I have were carefully created by God to make me a distinct individual? 2. Do I recognise that my physical and intellectual makeup were wisely and intentionally planned by God or do I want to remodel myself? perhaps to be smarter or taller or shorter or with or without freckles. 3. Is my present job and vocation appropriate for the work God wants me to accomplish? 4. Considering the length of time I've known the Lord, am I somewhat on schedule in my spiritual progress or am I labouring under false expectations for my growth? 5. Do I wish I were married to someone else? Does everyone except me seem to have a nearly perfect children? Do I recognise that my family has been chosen especially for me by God? 
or have I allowed movies, television and magazines to create a false expectation of marriage and family life that are impossible for my spouse and children to fulfil? 6. Have I encountered a conflict between God's adequate financial and material provisions and the high expectations raised by the prosperity teaching emphasis? Do I recognise the foundational error of approaching our Heavenly Father looking solely for promises to claim? As we learn to be content, it's vital for us to realise we do have the freedom to complain honestly before God without undermining our spiritual progress to a state of contentment. Although internal clamouring and comparing ourselves with others are sure to make us discontent, God does not expect stoicism during a season of severe affliction. The Psalms are full of the proper kind of complaint that is free of murmuring, a murmuring discontent. Proper complaint is yielded to a trust in the ultimate wisdom of God, while murmuring content causes something in us to rise in rebellion against him, criticising and doubting the wisdom of his ways. Conclusion we must all wrestle with the problem of discontentment. My experience with my economy car forced me to struggle with myself, my desires and with God in order to recover my contentment. Perhaps we should remember above all that although it's right to be contented with what we have, we are on a continual and progressive journey of being conformed into the character and likeness of Christ. So we must never be self-satisfied about who we are. On this journey we can count on his grace being sufficient for each of us. Brilliant. So that is um, uh, Life Changes Plum 9, volume 28, number 6, entitled Inflamed Desire by Bob Mumford. God bless. Funny.